The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Today, uh, for a few weeks now, our church has been working through a a series of messages on the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and um, we find ourselves uh, approaching the the last message in that series, and uh, we could honestly spend an eternity of Sundays covering the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that's without exaggeration without any fear of exhausting the subject of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we would have enough material to last us from now until the Lord takes us home. Because the, the Lordship of Christ is a reign that is eternal. The Lordship of Jesus Christ extends from eternity to eternity future. Eternity past to eternity future. In the book of Revelation in chapter 22, Jesus is revealed as the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in John 1 and verse 1, it lets us know that in the beginning, the Word was. And that is to say that before there was a beginning, there was the Word. That, that Jesus Christ existed before there was a beginning. The eternal Word. How do you even wrap your minds around that? Before there was time, the Word was. But the Lordship of Christ extends even beyond what we know as time. Time has a beginning, but outside of that, there is the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity who was with God and who is God. He's not bound by time. Uh, Time is bound by Him. He is the one who has no beginning, already was before the beginning. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We're not going to exhaust the possibilities of what we could say about the eternal Word of God. Now, Psalm 93 and verse 2, it says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The throne of the Son of God is from everlasting. From of old, from everlasting, parallel expressions, both to speak about the eternal reign of the Lord. How, how do you exhaust that? Well, we're not in danger of saying too much about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to move on because we're afraid that we'll run out of material. We've got eternity to cover. Uh, there's, there's plenty to talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And one day in eternity, we will speak about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Revelation 5 and verse 13, it says to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Be dominion forever and ever. It's an eternal reign. It's also a universal reign. The reign of Jesus Christ is universal. Not only does he reign eternally, he reigns universally. His sovereignty has no limits. You know, he doesn't have to wait until he buys up all of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the shares in order to make some decisions about the company. He already owns all the shares. <laughs> he, he owns all the stock. There, there's, there's no kind of accruing stocks until he can finally make some changes. Some of you might get that. Revelation chapter 5, and lets us know in verse 2 to 3, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? This is talking about the, uh, 
reinforcing just who has the rightful claim of the universe. Over in Revelation chapter 5, it speaks about who is, who is worthy to, to, to hold claim to the universe. Who's worthy to open up the books? Who is worthy to un, unroll the, the, the seals? Who's worthy to do that? Who's in charge around here? Revelation 5, verses 2 and 3, it says, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. Only a person with the authority was able to break those seals. And the answer is given later down in verse 6 of that same chapter. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus Christ has the rightful claim to the universe. There's no place where the lordship of Christ does not cry mine. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority belongs to the Son of God. He created it all. He sustains it all. He owns it all. We saw that in our studies of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. How do you run out of material when you're talking about somebody who has universal lordship? You could literally speak about anything and you'd be talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? You could talk about what you had for breakfast this morning and that is underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Under his dominion, under what he has provided for you, under what he has sustained you with. Everything is underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can't get away from it. Every subject that you've ever studied can take you back to the grand subject, Jesus Christ. Every message that I've ever preached from this pulpit has been a message about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'll confess it. I've been found out. It's the longest running series that we've ever done here. It's all about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's in control of absolutely everything. And there is no way to get away from his Lordship. If, if, if it's a lordship that has been eternal, and it's a lordship that is universal, it is also a lordship that is inescapable. How can you get away from it? You can't say I lived at a time when he did not reign because he reigns for all time. You can't say I existed in a place where his lordship or dominion didn't reach me because it's universal, it reaches to all places. You cannot get away from the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can't hide yourself from him. He's Lord of creation. He's the one who's created all things, heavens and on the earth. He's the Lord of the church. He's the head of the body, the church. He's Lord over the nations, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever you want to call yourself, you still belong underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why I say that Putin will bow. And Biden will bow. And whether you fight for freedom or you fight for tyranny, you will still bow. Everyone will bow. Every world leader, every politician, every military leader, every religious leader, everybody who wants to control religion, everybody who wants nothing to do with religion, you're still going to bow. <laughs> we're, not, we're not wondering if you will bow. The only question that we have is when will you bow? That's the question that, that we have. I have a friend, he wears a, a small pin uh, sometimes on his uh, jacket or on his shirt, and the small pin just says now or later with a question mark, now or later. And when people say, you know, hey, what, is that, what does that pin mean now or later? He says, I'm just wondering when you're going to bow. 
Is it going to be now or is it going to be later? Because you're going to bow. One way or the other, you will bow. We've, we've already settled that question. Uh, the question about whether or not you will bow has already been answered. That's a foregone conclusion. You will bow. The question is, when will you bow? Is it going to be now or later? And Philippians chapter 2 takes us to this very eternal and universal reign of Christ, and it makes it personal. It takes the eternal, the universal, and it says what's generally true is also specifically true. It's true about you. It's true about you that one day you will bow. One day your knees will bend. One day your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's generally true is specifically true. For some, that's going to be a joy. And for others, it's going to be sheer terror. Because they've been not denying the Lord for all of their lives. Running from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Denying the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when they confess, it will be a confession come too late. And that's, that's the, the question that we have for you today that we want you to consider. Is it going to be a confession too late? Or are you ready to join the choir now? <laughs> While you can sing it in joy that crown him with many crowns. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Are you going to join the choir now or will you have to be forced to utter that kind of confession after you've spent all your life long rebelling against this great king? Philippians chapter 2, why don't we uh, start at verse 1 just to set the context before us. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we are so grateful that the majority of us who are gathered here today have already bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, that we have recognized His Lordship, that we, we joyfully, voluntarily confess Him as our Lord. But Father, we do pray for those who are here today who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who have not yet recognized His Lordship, who have not turned the, the keys of their life over, who have not said that I'm done with myself, I'm ready to deny myself, to pick up my cross and to follow Him. Father, I pray that, that You would convict those today who are not yet underneath and serving this great Lord. And for those of us who are, oh Lord, I pray that we, would, that we would submit our lives to Him, that we would look at the example that He left for us. And Father, that we would be imitators 
of our great Lord. Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Philippians chapter 2, it's a, it's a chapter that we turn primarily to speak about the example of humility that's found here. Uh, theologians refer to the, the self-humiliation or the self-emptying of Christ here as the kenosis. It's from the, uh, the Greek word kanao that we find in verse 7 where it says that he emptied himself. That word, uh, the Greek word kanao, is to empty. It's a self-humiliation. And Christ is put on display here as the cure for pride and the key for unity. Because uh, what we find here is that Jesus Christ himself was an example of lowering himself for the sake of of others. And that that humility is really the the key to unity. It's the the, the cure for pride to look at the example of of Christ. And in humbling yourself, it's the the key to unity. Last week we heard uh, two excellent messages on on unity, one from uh, Ephesians 4 and the other from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul adds to it here in Philippians chapter 2 by saying, if you really want unity, you have to look to the example of Jesus Christ and learn from Him. And how can you continue to wrestle for positions of prominence and divide with your brothers in Christ when you look to the example of Jesus Christ? That's what's going on here in chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11 can be broken up into three sections. In uh, verses 1 through 4, Paul gives an exhortation towards humility. Uh, he identifies the, the principal reason why uh, the Philippians were not unified with one another, maintaining their love. It was because of a lack of humility. In verse 3, he speaks about their selfish motives. They were full of themselves. Verse 3, again, he says that they were conceited, considering themselves more important than others. In verse 4, it says you're only looking out for your own personal interests. You're only considering yourselves. It's like, how can you do that when you look at the example of Jesus Christ? How can you be so selfish? That's not the example that Christ set before us. And he gives this exhortation to humility. Then in verses 5 to 8, Paul gives them the example of humility. Just in case you need a reminder of what Jesus Christ did for you, look at how low the Son of God came. And imitate that attitude. Have that attitude in yourselves. And this passage really takes us deep into the the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. It's a a Christological gem or a Christological diamond, as many theologians have termed it. It's like it's many-faceted. You just kind of look at it from one angle and and see a new aspect of this humility of Jesus Christ. And in this this passage, we're just amazed at the self-emptying of our Lord, that as He emptied Himself, made himself of no account, became in the appearance of a a man, even went to the depths of the cross to sacrifice himself for us. And the context helps us to answer that question of what did he empty himself? You know, we talk about the self-emptying, but of of what did he empty himself? And we're not left to wonder about that. He he did not empty himself by emptying himself of his deity. He didn't empty himself of being God. He never ceased to be God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 makes that clear that he existed in the form of God, the the nature of God. He never lost that. He never emptied himself of the the fullness of deity. But rather what he emptied himself of was the display of his glory, the free exercise of his rights, and the recognition of his supremacy. When Christ entered into this world, he let go of that display of glory that belonged to him. That was rightfully his. Christ appeared as a man before men. 
being made in the likeness of men, it says in verse 7. The eternal, unlimited, all-glorious Son of God took on to himself all the limitations of humanity. All the weaknesses that we have. The frailties that we have. The one who created the world was born into the world. The one who sustained the world was, was held as a baby. I mean, he, he gave up that display of glory that belonged to him. He also did not uh, uh, freely exercise his divine rights. He had all of the rights, but he refused to use them for himself. He humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, it says in verse 7. He humbled himself. He didn't exercise his unlimited power for himself. He had the power to feed, feed thousands with five loaves and two fishes. But he refused to command stones to be made bread for himself. He had the power to turn water into wine, but refused to quench his thirst while he was on the cross. He was the one who had omnipotence, but he became weary and he slept. He had omniscience, but he had to grow in knowledge and favor and stature with God and before men. Why? He, he, he willingly did this. He humbled himself, took on our human limitations, refused to display his glory, refused to exercise his rights, he refused the recognition of his supremacy, becomes obedient to death, and dies at the hands of his own creation. That's how far he came. Peter puts it this way in Acts 2 and verse 23, this, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But why did he die? Because he, he gave up his life. No, nobody overpowered him. <laughs> he gave up his life. How does a betrayer get away with, with handing the Son of God over to the Roman guards with a kiss? Do you think that Judas outwitted the Son of God? How does the Sanhedrin get away with a mock trial, spitting in the face of their creator, beating him with their fists? How does Pilate get away with subjecting the king of creation to torture, reserved for the worst criminals and the slaves of society? We know how that happened. It's because Jesus laid down his life. John 10 and verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. He laid his life down, and he also did not reveal himself in the supremacy that belonged to him. Because other words, Scripture says they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just flip over there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Take a look at uh, verse 7. Jesus' true identity was veiled to the rulers that crucified him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 7. It says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God, before, uh, God predestined before the, to the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The display of his glory was hidden from their eyes, and Christ voluntarily laid his life down. Not only do we have this example of humility from Christ and the exhortation of towards humility, but there's also the exaltation from humility. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And against this dark backdrop of humiliation, the humiliation of the Son of God, there's this dazzling display of his exaltation. His exaltation. Think about this. That Jesus... In his incarnation, his humiliation, and in his crucifixion, 
he dropped to the lowest degree imaginable. He, he sunk to the lowest depths. A lower state cannot be conceived. This is rock bottom. Even for a man to be crucified is rock bottom. Crucifixion was the, the death of, of slaves and the worst criminals of society. Jesus went to the very depths. But in his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation in heaven, he is brought to the highest possible degree that could be imagined. So, so a lower state could not be conceived and a higher state could not be conceived. So here in side by side, this contrast, you have the lowest valley and the highest mountain, the darkest depth and the, the greatest glory. And it leaves us with this beautiful and majestic picture of the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. The picture of a humiliated and crucified Christ is not going to be the last picture that the world has of Jesus. You know, seeing Jesus on a cross, you know, this crucifix with a, a body hanging there, that is not the last image that the world is going to have of Jesus Christ. The last picture that this world will have of Jesus Christ is a Jesus Christ who will display himself in blazing glory and a Jesus that they will be compelled, even unwillingly, to, I've got to bow. I don't have any, I just can't help myself but to bow before his majesty. That is going to be the final picture that the world has of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will receive his recognition. Jesus Christ will receive his recognition. In his humiliation, he refused to display that glory, but he will one day display that glory for all to see. And the language is clear that you can't get any higher than what we find here in Philippians chapter 2. Number one, he receives the highest honor. Just take a look again at chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. He receives the highest honor. He receives glory above every glory. That word for uh, highly exalted uh, could actually be translated as super exalted. It's the, the Greek word huper upsao. Uh, we get our uh, English uh, word super or even the, the word hyper from a prefix to this word. It's a word that means to exalt beyond degree. It's over the top, beyond what could be measured, which is why it's translated as highly exalted. He's exalted to the highest place. It's, it's superior exaltation, beyond measure. The, the Lord has been exalted to the greatest position that could be imagined. No higher position can be attained than the one that Christ has. And the point is not that Christ did not already have the highest position before the incarnation. I don't want you to confuse that. It's not that he was somewhere lower and then he's elevated to this highest degree. He already was the reigning champion of heaven before he came down to earth, okay? So he already was in the highest position, but now the champion returns with some new medals, okay? He's elevated to this highest degree. The lamb comes back as the lamb who was slain. Having accomplished redemption, the glory is returned to him, and now he has new medals to show for it. Revelation 1 gives us just a, a brief glimpse of that heavenly glory that Jesus Christ will one day display. Flip over to uh, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, just for a, a brief view of this glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. Take a look at uh, verse 12, Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 12. Apostle John says this, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And that's going to be the condition of everybody who sees Christ, right? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Jesus Christ is showing himself in his glory. Like I said, the, the crucified Christ is not going to be the last picture that this world has of the Son of God. They will be blinded by the glory of the Son of God and forced to kneel in his presence. There is no higher position that could be imagined. And we're also told, secondly, that he has the highest name. Back in Philippians chapter 2, again in verse 9. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Not only is he given the highest position, he's also given the highest name. This is a name that speaks of his exalted position, his office, his rank, his dignity. And what is that name above every name? If you were to say Jesus, you would be right in a sense, because Jesus is the one we're referring to. But there are a few reasons to see that name that was given to Jesus as another name that's mentioned in this passage. Number one, Jesus was the name that was given at Christ at his incarnation. As he was humiliated. That's the name that was given to Jesus in his humiliation. The incarnation. The angel told Joseph, Matthew one twenty one, She shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That's the name that he was given at his birth, at his incarnation. So how is the name Jesus also that which is bestowed upon him as a result of him humiliating himself and dying on the cross? There's something else that is given to Christ, that's given to the one who was humiliated, is now given honor and exaltation. So there's a name that is given to Jesus Christ as a result of the work. Also, when you read uh, verse 10 carefully, it says, at the name of Jesus. It's actually a, a, a genitive which indicates that Jesus possesses a name to which everyone will bow. Number three, also, uh, every tongue confesses, but they don't confess that he is Jesus. What do they confess? He is Lord. He is supreme. He is over all. That is what they confess. They confess him as Lord. Also, the highest name according to the Old Testament scriptures would have been considered to be the Lord. Psalm 97 verse 9. It says, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You are the Lord and you are exalted above all. Psalm 148 verse 13. You might want to mark this one down. Psalm 148 verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. So if Jesus is going to be given the highest name, the name that Psalm 148 speaks about, that is alone exalted, the glory is above the earth and the heaven, what name would that be? The name would be Lord. Lord. And finally, and what's the most convincing for me is uh, that verse 10, which speaks about at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
is actually a quotation from Isaiah 45. Why don't you flip back to Isaiah 45? Isaiah 45. And uh, all throughout this section of Isaiah, uh, God is emphasizing that the Lord is his name. Actually, in uh, Isaiah 42, in verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. Isaiah 42, in verse 8, I will not give my glory to another. So you, you find Jesus being given this name. Actually, uh, take a look at Isaiah 45. Just look at uh, verse 23. Verse 23. It says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, what? Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to Him. So what we find here is that that name that is identified in Isaiah 45, in which Philippians chapter 2 quotes from, that the name given there is the name Lord. So at the name of Jesus, which is the name that's given to Him, conferred upon Him, the name Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and say, You are Lord. You are Lord. You are the one who is above all. This is the common confession of all true believers. There's uh, no assurance of salvation apart from this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, for many of us, those were the, the first uh, syllables that we uttered as newborn believers. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We came to Christ, and what did we confess Christ as? You're God. You're Lord. My allegiance is now to you. I've given my life over to you. According to Peter, the word which the disciples were sent to preach, the message that the disciples were sent to preach, Acts chapter 10, verse 36, it says, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. What was the message? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what they were to go out and, and tell to the nations. Jesus Christ is Lord. Bow the knee to Him. And the confession of Jesus as Lord is seen as the evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If, if you truly have the Holy Spirit at work in your life, if you've been born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, what is the Spirit within you going to confess? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is the confession of every true believer. And what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? First of all, to call Jesus Lord meant that you acknowledged His ultimate authority over your life. When we speak about somebody being Lord, we're saying that He's in charge. He is the ultimate authority. That word uh, Lord that's used... Uh, uh, in the New Testament is the Greek word kurios, and it was used for the, the master of a house, the owner of a slave, and it came to be used for giving ultimate allegiance to. It was uh, used for the Roman Caesars, you know, the emperors, who would, who would want that to be claimed about them. You, you need to swear ultimate allegiance to me. So they'd want them to say, kurios Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And the, those who refused to confess Caesar as Lord were often executed because they, they saw you as a traitor. You're, you're betraying your nation if you can't call Caesar Lord. And there were examples of Christians who during this early period of the, the church uh, who were 
pressed into positions where they were uh, given an opportunity to confess Caesar as Lord. You know, if you want to keep your life, you're going to say Caesar is Lord. And many of these Christians, as they came to give this proclamation, instead of saying, Curios Caesar, they said, Curios Jesus, Jesus is Lord. I believe in Jesus as Lord. I can't give ultimate allegiance to anybody besides Jesus Christ. One example is a man by the name of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, an old man by the time he faced the Roman court. The court tried to persuade him to think about his old age and just give honor to the emperor and call him Caesar. Call him Lord. Call him Lord. What could be so bad about calling Caesar Lord? Swear by him and we'll let you go. Polycarp refused and was burned alive for his faith. Christians understood that they couldn't give ultimate allegiance to anybody else besides Jesus Christ. It means ultimate authority over your life. To call Jesus Lord is to say, he has ultimate authority over my life. But not only that, calling Jesus Lord also means that you recognize his deity, that Jesus is God. As we already mentioned, uh, Philippians 2 is a quotation from uh, Isaiah 45 and I just flip back there just uh, one more time. I just want to show you uh, uh, here where it proclaims in the, the second half of uh, Isaiah uh, the salvation and deliverance of, of Israel. It also predicts the one who is to come who will bring ultimate deliverance, who is Jesus Christ. But back in Isaiah 45 again, listen to what it says uh, starting at verse uh, 17. Isaiah 45 starting at verse 17. Listen to what it says here about this Lord. It says, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it, a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I've spoken not in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. You care about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? Listen to what he says again. And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is... None except me. <laughs> Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is what? No other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. What other way can God say that there's only one God? There is no one else. There is no other God. There is no other. There's only one creator. There's only one who's omniscient. There's only one who's the savior. And then he says that every knee will bow and tongue will swear allegiance to me. And this verse is carried straight over in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul says that every knee will bow and tongue will confess to Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is claiming to be? (laughs) Who do you think Paul is saying Jesus really is? I mean, there is... I mean, is anybody confused about this? There is no other. There's only one. There's no other. There's none else. And Jesus is claimed to be that one. 
The Bible is very comfortable with calling Jesus God. The Bible is very comfortable with that. Calling Jesus the Lord, calling the Father the Lord. And as Jesus says in John 10.31, I and the Father are one, right? To call Christ Lord is to say that you are God. You are God. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, but I give it to him. (laughs) I give it to Jesus. He has my glory. He has my name. Worship him. The glory in that name is shared by Jesus Christ. But why? And you'll have to follow with me here back in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Because what Paul points out is that there's a reason why Jesus deserves this recognition. Now follow me, okay? Jesus already deserves this recognition because of who he is. That's already who he is. He's already God. Nothing's changed about that. He's already in very nature God. From all of eternity, we talked about that, right? From eternity to eternity, you are God. You know, so he's never changed. So it's not that, well, you now deserve this title because uh, uh, you're something different other than what you were. No, Jesus has always been the same. But he's saying that you now also deserve this recognition because of what you've done. You already deserve the recognition because of who you are. But let me talk about the recognition that you deserve because of what you've done. And this is what Paul picks up. Down in verse 9. Look at what he says again. For this reason. For this reason. What is the reason for this exaltation? Not just because of who you are, but because of what you've done. Something has led to this exaltation. And what is it? Number one, it's the undeserved humiliation of his lordship. The undeserved humiliation of his lordship. The phrase, for this reason... Or therefore, in some of your translations that begins in uh, verse 9, it's the Greek word dio. It's what's known as the, the strongest possible inferential conjunction. Uh, it means on account of this, as a direct result of this, as a consequence of this. So what he's saying is that when Christ submitted to the lowest humiliation possible, as a direct result of that, he deserves the highest recognition possible. He, he was humiliated to the lowest degree And because of that, he deserves the highest exaltation, the highest possible degree. Because of what he's done, the two are related. One is a consequence of the other. He came low so that he might be brought high again. This is the principle stated throughout Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm, uh, uh, Matthew 23, verses uh, 11 to 12, Jesus spoke of, of those who seek great names and titles for themselves, and speak in a way that's, that, that really elevates themselves. And Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And then turn over to, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. What we find here is that in the the house of a Pharisee, Jesus humbled himself, but he did not exalt himself. It was the Father who exalted him. And it's a necessary consequence of his humility. No one humbled himself more than Jesus Christ. Nobody. And this, this deprivation, even at birth, was the greatest step down. To to enter into a human body, the frailty of a human body, from being the Lord of glory to enter now into fallen humanity's condition, 
that I'm going to enter into this with you. I'm going to enter into your frailty, the deprivation at his birth in a stable. I mean, we look at somebody born in a stable. It's like, oh, I can't imagine anybody being born in a barn. Forget the barn for a moment. Can you imagine the Lord of glory coming down to this earth? I mean, even if he came down as a king, it would be so far beneath him. But he came down and deprived himself. Lived an impoverished life, having nowhere to even lay his head. All the way down to this ignoble death on the cross, the the death of criminals and slaves. You can't get any lower than where Christ came. That's why when he's exalted, you can't get any higher than where Christ went. It's proportional to the the depths that he dropped to is the heights that he was exalted to. There are many reasons why Christ deserves the place of supremacy, but one of the reasons Christ deserves the highest place is because he voluntarily took the lowest place, stooped to the lowest, became the servant of all. And what does that result in? Two, Two results in our text. Number one is universal submission. Look at verse 10. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 10. So that... You got to pay attention to all these words when you read your Bibles, okay? So that, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the purpose. It's the purpose clause here. What, what does this result in? He talked about the reason, you know, he receives these titles because of his humiliation, but then he also receives these titles so that what? What's, what's going to happen as a result of this? What's the, the purpose of this? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The picture that's given here is of Christ's supremacy and universal scope. Every is mentioned here three times in the in this, this context. Every, every, every. Name above every name, every knee, every tongue. Universal submission. That's why I call it universal submission. And to, to bow is seen here as more than just a, a sign of respect or reverence. It is a sign of submission and humiliation. This is clear from the context. Back to Isaiah 45. I know you turned back. You guys probably already marked it by now. Isaiah 45. We're going back there again. Isaiah 45. I just want you to see something there. Back in Isaiah 45. God is demonstrating his power and his authority over the nations. And when he talks about bowing, it's not some kind of curtsy just out of respect. Look at Isaiah 45. Look at verse verse 12. In this passage, he's he's talking about an, an honor that will come. Isaiah 45, starting at, uh, at verse 12. Look what he says again. He says, It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretch out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. I, will, I have aroused him in righteousness. I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, a God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of uh, those who are unbelievers, who are forced to bow in humiliation. Bring willingly, We willingly bring our sacrifice of praise to God. Those are those who are in heaven. 
you know, the redeemed and the, the holy angels. But there's a second category of people, and those who are on the earth is who we're talking about. Isaiah 45 speaks about those who approach him. There's those who glory in the Lord, those who are justified, and those who come uh, even in anger, but still are forced to bow before the Lord when he returns. The remnant that's left on the earth will rejoice in glory. And there are those who will have to come before him and bow whether they like it or not. In anger, they will bow before the majesty. And that's the scene that's described over in uh, uh, Matthew 25 as well, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when the nations are gathered before him. They will bow. They'll all bow before the majesty. Those who are left on the earth will appear and they will bow. That's what's going to happen. But how about those under the earth? There's this third category. Third category speaks about those who are unredeemed and even fallen angels. They will also bow. Flip over to, to Mark chapter 5 really quick. Mark chapter 5. This is an example of a, a man who was filled with demons. Had a legion of, of demons that he was possessed by. Let's see how, uh, how he approached Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Starting at verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. This is a strong guy. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. This is out of control. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. From a distance. Just the sight of Jesus from a distance was able to subdue him. This man who could break chains apart and gashes himself and everybody's fleeing in terror from this man. Just the sight of Jesus from a distance caused him to run so he could bow. This, this is the, the picture of even the demonic hosts who will one day be forced to bow before the majesty. He is the victor. Demons are even compelled to admit that you are Lord. Can you imagine that one day even Satan himself will bow his knees? The, the one who roams around as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour the enemy of the saints of the Most High will be forced to bow. Satan will bow before Jesus Christ. Amazing. And then finally, we have this universal confession, not just this uh, universal submission, but also the universal confession that we find back in chapter 2 again in verse 11. What's the universal confession? Verse 11, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In honor of the Father, Jesus Christ is brought honor. And all are forced to acknowledge His universal lordship. His deity, His authority, undeniable. The word that's used for confess here is a heightened form of the word for confess. It, uh, the word confess means to say the same thing, to agree with. The same thing that we've been saying, the church has been saying that Jesus is Lord, now everybody else will have to say the same thing. And it's a heightened form of this word. It's ex amalageo. It's a confession that's a great confession. It's forced out of these people. The great confession, it's, it's brought out of them. You are Lord. They're, they're, they're forced to join with all of the universe to say that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. This is not a reluctant confession. Well, I guess so. You know, no, this is, this is a, a full confession. And for some, a confession and humiliation that you are right and I was wrong. You are Lord. And Peter boldly declared that on the day of Pentecost, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The day will come when everyone will acknowledge that. Everyone's going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And that's a sobering thought. Everybody's going to be forced to acknowledge it. The Roman Caesars that forced people to hail them as Caesar Curios, they're going to be forced to hail Jesus as Curios. Hitler, who forced people to say, Hail, Hail Hitler, right? He'll be forced to hail the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Communist countries that mock and ridicule the idea of, of God. You know, there's a, you know, a, a Russian you know, astronaut that circled the globe and he says, you know, I, I went to heaven and I did not see God. Well, if he died, he would have. <laughs> They're going to be forced to proclaim that Jesus is God. Want to deny that Jesus is God? You will be forced to acknowledge him as God. You're going to call him Lord. Every skeptic, detractor, deceiver of our time, you know, they write these books, you know, about where is God. You know, if, if, if God is good, then, you know, why do bad things happen? They're going to be forced to recognize that Jesus is God. Every member of a false religion, every Muslim, every Buddhist, every Jehovah's Witness, every Mormon will be forced to bow the knee and call Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. Every church attender, those who might come in with false professions of, of faith, you know, who may speak about Christ with their lips, but their heart is far from him. They're going to be forced out of a full heart of confession to say, no, you, you are right. You are Lord. You are Lord. And for many people, it's going to be a confession come too late. Confession come too late. The Bible's clear that there will be many who will appear before Christ who will confess him as Lord, but it's going to be too late. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, it says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, 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 did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons, and in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work unrighteousness. You who practice lawlessness. Yeah, you recognize me as Lord, but it's, it's a confession to come too late. You spoke with your mouth, but your heart was far from me. You are workers of iniquity, practicers of lawlessness. And everything that you did down there was just for show. You know, people who, who are in it for the money. You know, it sounds, sounds a lot like the, uh, you know, word of faith, name it and claim it to me. Prophecy and exorcisms and miracles. A lot of people do it for show. Not a true confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They haven't submitted their lives to Him. How much better to practice a, a true confession now than to wait for the universal confession later? This is where history is headed. Why would you wait to make your confession at a time when it doesn't count? <laughs> Why would you wait to make your confession at a time when it will not save you? Why not make the confession now? Why not make the confession so that you can be saved? What are you waiting on? 
Is it going to be now or is it going to be later? It's going to come, right? One way or the other, you will confess. Will it be now when you can confess the Lord savingly and enter into His eternal kingdom? Will it be now? Why wouldn't it be now? Why wait to make that confession during a time when it will not save you? Same confession that saves now will only condemn you later. Why not confess Him now as Lord? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. What does that mean to confess Jesus as Lord? It means that you acknowledge His ultimate authority over your life. That's what it means. We, we, we learned about that earlier, right? That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. Ultimate allegiance I give to you. You are in charge. I give my life over to you. That's, that's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. It means to say that, Jesus, I know that you are God. Just what the Scripture says about you. You are that second person of the Trinity. The, 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 the deity in, in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. You are God. I recognize you as the, the Lord of all the earth. Lord of all creation. I recognize you as that. Even now, you are Lord. I'm not looking for anybody else. Will you acknowledge Jesus Christ now as the Lord of all the earth? And will you give your allegiance to Him and do it while you can be saved? Today is the day of salvation. Come to the Lord now. What does that mean for us as believers as we've read through this? Don't forget that this is an exhortation towards humility. What does that mean? It means that we don't walk around trying to elevate ourselves, trying to promote ourselves, trying to do all that we can to get the best seats in the house. That's not what we do as believers. What we do, if, if you want to go high, you go low. <laughs> you go low. <laughs> when they go high, we go low, right? When they go high, we go low. We go low. We go low. We're, we're not looking to be high. We're not looking for the high road. No, I'll take the low road. <laughs> give me the low road. What's, what's the way that I can come in and serve and give my life up and not be seen? Like that's, that's the path for me. Why? Because that's the path that my Savior took. <laughs> I want to walk where He tried. I want to walk in His steps. How did Jesus walk? He walked the path of humility. That's where I want to walk. I'm not coming into the church to look for how, how can I... How can I exalt myself? And you know, everybody knows. No, that that's not me. I, give me the low road. Is there a place that I can serve? How, how can I how can I give my life up for the sake of the many? That's that's what I want to do, because that's the road that my Savior walked. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for this text and uh, just for being able to, to see again the, the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that we would walk where he walked. Uh, Father, that we would follow his example. Uh, that the way to be exalted, the way to be honored by the Lord is to, is to get low. Not to, to seek positions of prominence. It's to get low before the Lord. Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that, that we would 
seek for ways that we can even serve our fellow brothers and sisters here in Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the supreme example of our, our Savior. And uh, we pray that we would walk after him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. George Lawson, Jr. and Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.